thing that's up on the screen of changeless values in a changing world. Uh, I'm conscious that um, we want to give lots of time for uh, the ladies to enjoy um, downstairs afterwards, and maybe some of you are also um, got other arrangements, so we'll uh, make sure that we finish in good time. If you've got a Bible this morning, I wonder if you go to one of the most famous chapters in the whole of Scripture, certainly in the New Testament, and that is 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, some of you will almost know these um, verses off by heart. And as you uh, are finding those verses, I'd like to give a welcome this morning. Um, we have lots of people come through Arena Church uh, on many occasions, and it's not always possible uh, in the time frame to welcome everybody. But this morning, I'd like to welcome Pastor and Mrs. Colin and Hazel Whitaker with us. Um, Colin and Hazel have uh, served in ministry for many, many years, uh, served many of our Assemblies of God churches, and uh, also Colin's a gifted writer. He's wrote several books, particularly on the theme of revival. And uh, for those of you that enjoyed Re Magazine and still do in terms of it being online, um, the precursor to that had numbers of names, and Colin, on two separate occasions, was also the editor of that magazine. And they're with us this morning. I wonder if you show your appreciation of a fine couple that have served Jesus, and we give you a really warm welcome this morning in Jesus' name. Thanks for being with us, and uh, it's so good to welcome you. So 1 Corinthians 13, the changeless values in a changeless world. We're leading up to Easter, and we're saying in a couple of weeks' time as we come to the Easter weekend that in this incredibly fast-changing world in which we live, we believe in the changeless value of the cross and of the risen life. And we've sought to touch on one or two themes as we go towards that particular weekend. We cannot deny that the world is changing hugely, and frankly, to try and do so is crass. But there are values within those changes that are eternal, that are biblical, and actually are vital, and they are changeless. We talked about the changeless value of the Word of God a couple of weeks ago. And last week, Christian reminded us of the changeless value in a changing world of the church. He reminded us of community. He reminded us of the course that the church is called to. And he reminded us that the church expresses the many varied colors of God's wisdom, Ephesians 3 times. A great message, Christian, thanks. And I'm sorry this morning that there's no bricks, there's no tiles, there's no mortar, there's no cement. There's none of that. I mean, they really would fall down if I tried to do it. But it's just me this morning. So, but I trust that you got the heart of that. And even this week and even yesterday, some of us were at our first ever central area conference. And thanks to all those from Arena that supported it. Uh, it was great. Uh, we were reminded again through our national leader, John Partington, of the absolute value of belonging to a local group of people, a community of believers that love and serve Jesus. And so here we are on Mother's Day, on, on Mothering Sunday, uh, whichever way you want to call it. And it seems appropriate this morning in terms of our series that I talk for a few moments on the changeless value in a changing world of the power of love. And uh, we recognize that motherhood and womanhood has undertaken some huge shifts even in modern times. You see, I was reading just this week that in the 1950s when I was born, I don't know all that old, but it really was true. In the 1950s when I was born, that 59% of uh, married women in our nation were happy to be called housewives. Today it's 11%. And uh, the fact of the matter is that far more women, for all sorts of reasons, have to go to work nowadays, juggling lots of balls. 
the huge spike in divorce and single parenthood for all sorts of reasons, some of them not always good, has brought huge demands in a modern society on motherhood and womanhood. And we recognise that. And today we want to honour it, we want to value it afresh. You may say, well, what's your qualification on Mother's Day to speak? Normally we wheel a woman out. Well, we actually wheel women out in our church on more than Mother's Day. And we don't want to feel that it was just some sort of tokenish thing this morning. My qualification as a bloke in preaching on Mother's Day is that I had one. And uh, she's not here anymore. And I've shared the story a little bit about my mum and the last 10 or 11 years of her life uh, were usually affected by a stroke. And um, I had the privilege of preaching at a funeral. And uh, I, got, I got the word just one night when I'm weak that I am strong. And... Um, and it was just a huge privilege to realize that when the mum was in actually great physical weakness, she showed huge amounts of strength. I remember my uncle writing to me two days after the funeral. He's not a believer. He's not a follower of Jesus. He says, thanks for the message. And he signed it off. Hallelujah. I mean, it's just amazing. And uh, so I, I had a mum. And uh, my mum wasn't perfect, but she laid some real values into me. She laid the value of punctuality into me. She was the greatest alarm clock I've ever had. And she said, you get to school on time. And when I started to go to work at 16, she said, you go to work on time. And uh, it's, it's sort of live with me. If, if I'm late, it's for a reason. Um, because, you know, I, I get there on time. Jeff Pickup says, I'm the person in the world that lives his life 15 minutes in front of everybody else. It's just sort of, you know, something I do. My mum laid, laid the value of uh, courtesy into my life. Don't forget you, please, and thank you, Christian. And, uh, and uh, it, it's never been difficult for me to do that. Uh, it's just sort of part of me. Uh, if it's difficult for you as a Christian to say thank you, you, you really need to ask God to dig deep in your heart. Uh, she laid a value into my heart of humility. And, uh, and I, I trust that all those have been deepened in my devotion to Jesus as a Christian. And, uh, and then, of course, I've lived with another mum uh, in the 30-odd years of our married life. 28 and a half of those have been with a mother because that's exactly the age of our oldest daughter, Miriam. And uh, I, I recognize that a mother's love is amazing. I've recognized that a mother's love is always enduring and on occasions extraordinary. And uh, it, it, it has something that uh, no other sort of love carries. And of course, the word, the word love sort of conjures up many imaginations amongst us. A million songs and poems have been sung and written about it. And sadly, in our modern days, often love is trivialized or it's sensationalized. You know, when you go and get a paper at the supermarket, you see all those magazines. East Ender Star falls in love with Broadmoor Murderer, you know, or whatever it is. <laughs> and sadly, of course, and we alluded to this a little bit with some sensitivity two weeks ago, often love is just sensualized. There's a context for that. We talked about it, but it's more than that. And I want to take a few moments this morning to... Just bullet point the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. I'm not going to expand it hugely, but I'm just going to bullet point some great points again. And then I want to read, uh, I just want to bring a couple of illustrations that I think are appropriate to the context of this morning that hopefully will speak to our hearts and challenges. 1 Corinthians 13. And of course, the verse that I want to particularly take this morning is verse 8. And in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, it simply says this that love never fails love never fails and here's the call to raise the standard beyond the trivia beyond the sensational to come to a place of understanding what the real love of god 
that can be expressed in our hearts is all about. This morning our focus upon mums, but of course a wider application than that. And Paul writes to the Corinth church, a church that was charismatic in its expression, but often sadly carnal. A church that chased the gifts, but also was sometimes lagging behind in character. And he gives Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. And we try sometimes to take Corinthians 13 out of its immediate context. But it is the jam in the sandwich. Because in Corinthians 12 and Corinthians 14, Paul talks about the expression of spiritual gifts. The values of this church are that we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in the power of the Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Again, we heard something of that yesterday. Not just confined to the church building, but in us and spilling out of us in context of life. But here's the truth. The gifts of the Spirit do not work without love. They really don't. And some of us have been around church long enough to see people express the gifts of the Spirit at times without love. Not a pleasant experience. Because love, friends, drives everything. I want you to notice in verses 1 to 3 the importance of love. It says because we can have all sorts of things in our lives, but without love, we're nothing. And of course, as we understand in our English language, sometimes the word that we have in English for a word that was originally written in in the New Testament Greek uh, of, uh, of the original language of the New Testament doesn't always give absolute uh, breadth to what the word is trying to say. In the ancient Greek language, there were probably four words used for love. The first one was eros, which speaks of that intimate relationship between man and woman in marriage. Then there's the word philio, love expressed in friendship. There's the word storge, which speaks about love, particularly within a family context. And then there's the word which perhaps we would be most familiar with, which is the word agape, which is the word mentioned predominantly in the New Testament. And the word agape is really speaking about a love that rests in the will. Someone says that this love is a love of the will, and it doesn't just involve the emotions. You see, agape love is that love that is expressed between a man and woman on their married day when the minister, the vicar, the the leader of the service says certain words, and at certain times it's interjected with, I will, in sickness, in health, in all those sorts of things, I will. We thank God, friends, that when we come to church at times, the presence of God is so real, so tangible, that sometimes it almost has a physical impact upon us. We feel that that tingling up the spine, we feel emotional, we feel moved, we feel touched, but it's more than that. The love that responds to God says, I will. It's the love that when Jesus found himself in the Garden of Gethsemane and cried out to his God and said, Oh God, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He said to God, I will go the way of the cross. It's the love that defines our discipleship. When Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give unto you. That, uh, you'll, that you'll love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. Christian said something to me just this week, and I believe it's true, and it's going to be a journey. He says, thank God for the love in Arena Church, but that love in Arena Church between us needs to go deeper. It needs to go deeper. And the reason it needs to go deeper is because it continually defines our discipleship journey. You see, 
the Bible had talked in previous times about God, people loving one another, but he was a deeper, higher standard. Here was Jesus saying it's something more in Christ. And one of the great ways that you express your discipleship is that you will love one another. It's agape love. I will. Our national leader was talking yesterday about sometimes perhaps not always liking people. And the reason that sometimes we don't like people is not because we, you know, it's it's anything sort of that's really negative, but we come at life so differently at times. We like different things, different sorts of music, different sort of occupations, different hobbies, different things. But the reality is that's the beauty of the church. It fuses us all together. Men and women, boys and girls, young people and, 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 and elderly people, different sort of takes on life, but fused together with an incredible agape love that says, I will. Paul writing in Ephesians chapter 3 says it's a love that has a depth and a width and a height. It's a love that's beyond knowledge. If you're trying to get to God with your head today, it's not going to happen. Does that mean that you should chop your head off to try and get to God? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that you shouldn't ask the hard questions? No, it's not saying that. Does it mean that you should stop being a thinker? No, it's not saying all of any of that. We encourage people to do that. But the reality is, somewhere along the line, you've got to be invaded in your heart by the love of God. And it surpasses knowledge. We used to sing that song in kids' church or Sunday school, as we used to call it in another age. You know, the love of Jesus is so wonderful. So high, you can't get over it. So wide, you can't get around it. So low, you can't get under it. Oh, wonderful love. We used to do actions. So the courses, can you remember? Woo! Still remember it. But here's the importance of love. And as I said, I'm only bullet pointing it and not expanding it. Paul goes on to give six things in these verses. He calls them tongues and prophecy and knowledge and faith and benevolence and even martyrdom. And he says those things are worthless if there's not love burning in our hearts. John sent um, letters to the churches in Revelation, seven letters that actually he penned but came from the very heart of Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, the church at Ephesus, God says to them, I call you back to your first love. You know, God, friends, wants us to live our Christian life increasingly and continually in an expression of first love. He doesn't want it to diminish. He doesn't want it to grow cold. He doesn't want it to become a flicker, but he wants it to become a blaze. You may have been a Christian 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, but you can still live that amazing first love that says, I will follow the Lord. And then what's the essence of love? Verses 4 to 7. Well, it's been the MasterChef final this week, hasn't it? Anybody watch the MasterChef final? And... uh, you know, we come to a, we come to a journey. I, I sort of missed the sort of, I just got in on the end bit to see that uh, lovely Mauritian lady win the final uh, on Thursday night. And, uh, of course, we've seen all sorts of different flavors and ingredients that come together in a dish. Don't like, look like any of the food I eat, by the way, but, uh, but it all comes together. And then, no, no. no. It was, it wasn't, no, 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 I need to, I need to wind that, no, what are we, 
they're saying is <laughs> that when they're preparing that food for all of those chefs, it becomes so technical, it doesn't uh, sort, of, sort of seem to have any... any <laughs> This is going to ruin the message. <laughs> it's going to ruin the message. Where were we, Master Chef? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I, I was just sort of thinking, you know, that um, the ingredients, and of course, people start crying over food. He gets, I mean, come on, you know. But I think they're not crying over the food. They're crying out of those guys shouting them for the last eight weeks about the different sort of ingredients that have taken place. But here's the truth. Why did I use that illustration? I'm not quite sure, but uh, <laughs> but I've, I've got the rest of the day to pull that back. To enjoy a gorgeous lunch cooked by my wife, and uh, and uh, oh. <clears throat> the essence of love. Let me just list it for you, because it's there in verses four to seven. Love is patient; it means it suffers long. Love is kind; it's generous and thoughtful. Love does not envy; it's not jealous of another's gifts or abilities; it rejoices in them. Love does not boast. One translation says, "Love makes no parade." It is not proud. Jesus exemplified the humble walk. It is not rude. It does not behave itself unseemly. It is not self-seeking. It is, not, it is unselfish. Love prefers others. It is not easily angered. It's not quick-tempered or irritable. It keeps no record of lo- wrongs because love forgives and goes on forgiving. It does not delight in evil but rejoices in truth. Someone says that love is never glad when things go wrong. It protects because it bears all things. It trusts, not that it's gullible, but neither is it cynical. It hopes to have a confident expectation of what lies ahead. It perseveres and endures and never gives up on people. That is the essence of the love of God. And then what about the permanence of love? Verses 8 to 13. Love never fails. And in these verses, we're reminded of the enduring quality of love. J.B. Phillips, who wrote a great take on the New Testament, says, Love can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when everything else has fallen. And in these closing verses of the chapter, love gives us a perspective for the now. It says gifts are important, but they're not all important because one day we're not going to need them anymore. Because we're in the internal, we keep a perspective about the gifts that God gives to us. And then love gives us a promise, not only a perspective for the now, but a promise for the future. Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. You know, we're Christian believers that believe in eternity, but the reality is all of us face the challenge at times of being earthbound. of, Of looking at everything through a natural and a temporal gaze. But now, we only know in part. Love says that then, we shall fully know. Another translation on this, or or rather on another take in the Bible, uh, from this particular passage says, we don't see things clearly, we're squinting in a fog, peering into the mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it as clearly as God sees, knowing him directly just as he knows us. 
The reality is, friends, that over the ministry journey, I've sat and ministered with people in all sorts of circumstances, sometimes tragic. And their questions and my questions have run to a why. And in those moments, on many occasions, we've simply cried out to a loving God and said, one day, one day, it's all going to be clear. We trust in the absolute truth and integrity of the word and in a loving God that cares for us and is always faithful. And one day, it will be faithful. This is absolutely no word of a lie, but in my notes, I make reference to the long-standing Baptist minister of this town, the Reverend Michael Hooten, who is actually in this service this morning. Where are you, Michael? Why don't we just give Michael a, a clap for his amazing service into this town over the years. Thank you. I know many of you connect with Michael in sort of all sorts of things he does during the week and love him dearly. And I said, Michael, this is absolutely true. But one Monday morning when we were sat downstairs, just uh, uh, sharing a few things at the beginning of the week, Michael sort of gave a little bit of a take on these verses. And he described somebody walking down the hallway of a house towards the door. And some of you may have one of these doors where there's a glazed window within it. And somebody's rang the bell and you're walking towards the door. And all you can see is some sort of outline, some sort of silhouette. But you cannot see clearly. And then you open the door. Ah, welcome. And that's a little bit of, I think, a great illustration of what God's trying to say about these particular, this particular passage. You see, in our humanity, in our fallenness, in our limited understanding at times of what God is actually doing in the bigger picture, we look through a glazed window as we're locked into temporal time. But there's a day coming when the door will be totally open. It's called eternity. It's called the day when there'll be no more sorrow or pain or tears or crying because the former things will have been passed away and love will usher us into a new day. We'll fully know and we'll be fully known and we'll see it all come to place because love endures and it never fails. I want to encourage you today to trust that God of love because he is worthy to be trusted forever and ever and ever. So I come to my two closing illustrations that bring this message to a conclusion this morning that I think are particularly relevant to womanhood. And the first one is one of my great women history uh, uh, heroes, women his, heroes of history. And her name's Mrs. Rosa Parks. And Rosa was born in the American Deep South in 1913. Uh, she was a qu Christian woman that married uh, and yet never did have children of her, her own. And yet she became called the mother of the modern-day civil rights movement. And some of you know the story. December the 1st, 1955, she was a seamstress. Some of the ladies that perhaps worked in the hosiery industry or the, or, the, or the knitwear hosiery historically would know what a seamstress is, and you've got to sort of keep the seam straight. She was in her early 40s, and she used to go every day from work in Montgomery, Alabama, to, to work. And she was, of course, a black American. And in those days, particularly in the Deep South, racism was not only serious, but it was also sinister. And the prejudice and the discrimination was huge. Oddly, there's thinking about in terms of it being in a relatively recent past. And uh, Rosa Parks was also a committed Christian. And on that fateful day of the 1st of December 1955, she was sat on the bus. And the bus driver told her to move and vacate her seat because a white man had got on the bus. And there wasn't room. And that day she says, no, nah. nah, not moving. And it actually became the catalyst for the civil rights movement to just become like a wildfire that sort of burst uh, out from those southern states. And so in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King stands on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Out of those sorts of 
uh, stances of just ordinary women and says, I have a dream. I won't even try the accent. I've got enough trouble already this morning. I'd love to, but no, no. <laughs> I have a dream that my children will live one day in a nation where they will be not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And of course, whatever you think about his politics, the greatest democracy in the world today is led by a black African president for the first time. And it started with bold, courageous stances of women that says, Haha, I've had enough of this. I'm saying, in the same place, in the bush. A few years later, she, she wrote a book called Quiet Strength. And in that book, she reflected that when I sat down on the bus that day, I had no idea that history was being made. I didn't feel fear, I felt love. I felt that the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever I had to face. It was time for somebody to stand up, or in my case, to sit down. Rosa Parks died at the age of 92, 24th of October 2005. She became the first black American woman ever to lie in state in Washington Cathedral. Thousands and thousands of people of all creeds, colors, and contexts filed past her because actually she became a mother to a nation. She made a prophetic statement that we're not defined by the color of our skin, but actually there's something deep within us. And it was fused by a passioned love of God. And then let me take you to the Friday morning of the 3rd of February this year. Many of you will know that we had the joy as a national leadership team out of a, just a great favor of God to go with our wives to Israel for six days that were jam-packed full and were a great time of connecting, of camaraderie, but also absorbing some of the sights of uh, the land that we've read about so many times in the Bible. And there was uh, much to absorb, but probably that Friday morning, for many of us, really just stick in the memory. You see, that morning we went to Yad Vashem. It's the state-of-the-art museum complex that commemorates and documents the Holocaust. The death of six million Jews in the hands of Nazism fueled by a crazed dictator, again, in modern history. Our guide was a lady called Hansi. She was a Lithuanian South African that had lived in Jerusalem for many years. She led us on the tour as if it was the first time, even though she'd done it hundreds of times. She was articulate and passionate. And she shared some of, something of the story of uh, our own people and the uh, depravity that they'd had to endure. That morning there were uh, many moist eyes and even quite weeping as for the next two or three hours our senses and our sight was overwhelmed by the way that uh, everything was portrayed to us. And if ever you get the chance, it really is something to behold. One of the pictures that stands in my mind, particularly on this day, were young children being snatched from their mother's arms, often never to be seen again. And it was sobering in the extreme. That all said, there was also a great triumph that came out of that morning. And every day, one of us as the national leadership team sent a blog back to the Israeli tourist authority in the UK that had uh, kindly sort of uh, organized the trip to give a reflection on what had happened. I want to give you the words of my colleague, Grayson Jones, this morning, just a little take on what Grayson felt on that morning. He says, the overwhelming theme was not a brutality of the Nazi regime, but of a spirit of determination of a people 
that were committed not only to survive, but to to thrive in whatever circumstances. It was a remembrance, but also a celebration that commemorates in a dignified and honoring way people who perished and lived. And its impact will live with us forever. You see, in the Jewish ghettos that were under huge pressure in those days, theater groups emerged, orchestras played their music, many factories were found, and mothers and women played a huge role in saying that even though everything is against us, love never fails. And something can triumph in our hearts that brings out the best and the good. This is a special day. There'll be lots of memories around the room of uh, mothers. Some of you feel quite emotional. Uh, for some of us, we've had to say bye to our mums and they're in eternity. I trust that if your mum's on earth, you're going to take the opportunity at day, even if she's not local, to at least uh, make a call and say afresh, Mum, I-, I love you. I appreciate all that you do. And we love this day. Uh, we, we, it fits right into where we, where we are with this theme, but In a changeless world, we celebrate again the changeless value of the power of unfailing love. We take the opportunity this morning to salute motherhood and womanhood across Arena Church. We thank God for every one of you. We thank God that there is something deeply intuitive in you that reflects the love of God. And we're reminded this morning that love never fails.